If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Just go to the far right side of your Bible. If you see Revelation, keep going to the left. 2 Peter chapter 3. One of the things that I know and I consider each week as I prepare to preach is that I know that I will be held accountable for every sermon I preach. And not only will I be held accountable for every sermon I preach, I'll be held accountable for the motivation behind the message I preach. And that's why the greatest protection I have is that every week I tell you to open your Bible. You've heard me say this many times. Hear it again. The day comes when anyone stands here and doesn't tell you to open the Word of God, you find another church. Because we got nothing else. No matter what we face in our lives, no matter what we face as a nation or as a church, we always go to the Word of God. It's our standard of truth. And so this morning, in light of all that we're facing, we need God's word more now than ever. And uh, if you know 2 Peter chapter 3, you know it's all about the day of the Lord. And I figure, with this election coming and it being Halloween weekend, let's talk about the day of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray together, then we'll jump into this text. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come into your house this morning, and we recognize that this is a freedom that far too often we have taken for granted. And Lord, we just ask that you would, this morning as we open your word, you would bless your word. God, I pray that you would calm our hearts for this time, help us to lay aside anything that would distract us from hearing you. Speak to us, Lord, by the power of your word and the power of your spirit, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me at verse 1, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. It says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior, or uh, the holy prophets, meaning the Old Testament, the commandment of the Lord and Savior, that's Jesus in the Gospels, and spoken by your apostles, that's the gathering New Testament. So, so Peter here, as he finishes this letter, he finishes by writing to them about the day of the Lord. That day when, when Christ shows up and you don't have to take him by faith anymore, and as Scripture tells us, men and women will, will faint in his presence as the heavens pass away with a roar and the elements will melt with intense heat. And so he writes to them about the day of the Lord in order to shake them up. You see him there saying, stir you up to remind you. And you got to remember, these are a group of people who are facing severe persecution 
Persecution the likes of which we couldn't even possibly understand. And they were thinking about throwing in the towel. They were thinking about giving up. And so Peter writes to shake them and awake them that don't you get sucked into the things of this earth and the maneuvering of men in this world and forget that there's a kingdom above us and there's a spiritual battle going on all around us. And one day all this stuff that consumes us and all the vain accomplishments of men will pass away and Christ will establish his righteous kingdom. That one day Christ will return and he will set things right. And what he says here is that all of God's word, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus and the Gospels and the gathering New Testament, all present to us these flashing lights. It's hard to turn a page in God's word without being reminded that one day Christ will come back. And then he says in verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, he's saying that we preach this stuff, that Christ is returning and and your life is going to be unveiled and you're going to be judged by Christ, that, that you are not free, you're not autonomous, you are culpable, you are accountable. And there is heaven and there is hell. And we preach this stuff. And what is the response of the world? The world mocks us. They mock us as childish and and foolish. And it says that they follow after their own lusts. Because when you remove God and, and you remove the standard of truth of right and wrong, guess what happens? People do whatever's right in their own eyes. That's what happens when you get rid of God and truth and morality and when there's no fear of judgment and no fear of God. And part of their reasoning, Peter says, is this, that if God is real, where has he been? If God is real, why don't we see some kind of divine intervention? If he's going to come, what's he waiting on? Well, look at verse 5. Peter warns them, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice but that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Notice the key phrase there, the word of God. He says, here's what they fail to notice, that God and his word are sovereign over history. God and his word are final. By his word, he created the earth. By his word, he destroyed the earth in the days of Noah with a flood. And by his word, he says that this present world, meaning Kansas City and and New York and L.A. and Moscow and Beijing, this present world is reserved for fire. It's just waiting on the word of God. That our world is one word away from it all coming down. God's word is not idle. It is final. When God speaks, you can take it to the bank, write it down. When God says in Acts 17 that he's fixed today in which he will judge the world through a man, rest assured, he has fixed a day. So these people that mock, they fail to understand the finality and the sovereignty of God's word. But then look what he says in verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Chuck Swindoll said, God 
made time and man invented watches. The point here is God's not working on your clock. God is not impressed with time. You remember the the disciples in Acts chapter 1. Jesus, is is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom? You remember what Jesus said to him? It's not for you to know the times and the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. That God didn't put you on the time and dates committee. That's not your job. And then he tells them, you'll be my witnesses. You got a job to do and is go tell as many people as you can about me. But God doesn't work on our clock. Not impressed with time. And then in verse 9, the Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That God is not forgetful. He's patient. He's merciful. He's patient. And his patience is purposeful. In a day and age where there is murder and rape and abuse and injustice occurring every day, why does he allow it to continue He says here because he's saving out a people that he doesn't desire any to perish. God loves saving people. And every minute that God gives us is another minute in which we have an opportunity to tell our friend, our neighbor, our co-worker, our relative about the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so that when he returns they don't know his judgment but know his salvation. How many of you are grateful that Christ didn't return five years ago or ten years ago? How many of you are grateful that Christ didn't return in 1980? Because you'd have been toast. That's the Greek word. You'd have been in trouble. And can I just ask you this morning, how many of you knew that Christ was returning this afternoon would plead with him for just one more day so that you could go tell a family member one more time that you need to trust Christ? Praise God, he is patient and desiring none to perish. But do not, what Peter says here, don't mistake his patience for a lack of follow-through. In other words, just because he hasn't come doesn't mean that he's not coming. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. That Christ will come, even though it might appear that he's being slow in our minds, he will come. And he will come suddenly, he'll come unexpectedly, and he comes like a thief. He takes everything. The heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will, will melt with intense heat. It's all coming down, just like in the days of Noah, just like in the days of Lot in Sodom. And what he's telling us here is that history, it's not cyclical. That history is not just winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, over and over again. No, in his word, he's given us an in the beginning. And then you see the patriarchs, and then you see the law, and then you see grace, and then you see the kingdom. And then you see his return and in revelation, and they will reign with him forever and ever. That history is going someplace. And it's going someplace under the glory of God. And it's Christological that God glorifies himself and his incarnation and coming into time and space. And it's redemptive that he takes the evil of this world and he turns it around for our good. He takes a cross and works it out for our salvation so that we're freed from the domain of Satan. And history has an omega point that we all look forward to. 
All of scripture points us to. It's the return of Christ that he is coming back. And then in verse 11, the question is, in light of all this knowledge, how shall we live? Look at what he says in verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat, but according to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When the Bible gives us information about the future, when the Bible gives us information about the end times, it's not just so that we can fill our heads full of a bunch of knowledge. It's not so that we can create some real nice charts and graphs and tell everybody we got it all figured out. That's not the reason the Bible gives us information about the last days. The Bible gives us information about the last days in order to change our lives. It's always written in order to modify the presence present day. In other words, knowing future events is to shake you. It's meant to adjust your life so that you're in keeping with what God is doing right now. Yeah, when, if you're like me, when you're in grade school, you have a teacher that um, in class would step out of the room for a moment, and what happened when she stepped out of the room? It'd get a little crazy, wouldn't it? But there was always a level of fear and trepidation. Why? Because you knew at some point that teacher was going to step back in and you didn't want to be caught doing something that you didn't need to be doing or shouldn't be doing. Right now, Christ has stepped out of the room physically. Now, he's still involved in sovereign what's going on. But listen, at some point, he's going to step back in the room. And the message here is that knowledge is intended to change our present lives. In fact, what he says here is we're to be holy meaning set apart and distinct, constantly checking our lives, evaluating our lives to make sure that we're ready because at any moment Christ could return. Someday will be your last day and you're gonna stand before God with his eyes like coals of fire and his feet like burnished bronze and a sword emitting from his mouth. Yeah, I, I see the way that some people are living today, Christians, Like Demas, who who having loved this present world, have walked away from Christ. And I just want to shake them and grab them like the thief on the cross and say to them, do you not fear God? He's coming back. We're to be holy. Remember Jesus in that parable, Luke 18, he says in verse 8, when the Lord returns, will he find faith? If Christ returned today, would you, would, be in, would you be embarrassed by how you're living? Are you faithful? I don't know about you, but he's been far more faithful to me than I've been to him. And if he comes back tomorrow, I want him to find me faithful. And we're looking forward to Christ's return. We hasten. That's what we see here. We're hastening the return of Christ. Like children on Christmas Eve, we anticipate the return of Christ in verse 13. And the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. We live and exist in a world where evil and justice prevails. In a world that is dominated by the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says in Ephesians. A world where injustice is done to us as believers. That's the story of Christianity since its inception has been persecution. It's what we expect. 
First Peter chapter 4, don't be surprised at the fiery deal among you as if some strange thing were happening to you. Jesus said to us, in this world you will have trouble. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Jesus says, woe to you who are spoken well by all men. He says, if you have no enemies, it might be because nobody really knows who you are. That we're to live distinct in the midst of an adverse culture. And the cry of our hearts is what? Come, Lord Jesus, come. We long for the day when Christ will return and he'll make things right. When as we sing at Christmas that song, Christmas Bells, when, when wrong will fail and right will prevail with peace on earth, goodwill towards men. We long for the return of Christ, and we, we want to represent Christ well. In verse 14, it says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Notice what he says here, what, how we should live, what we should look like. He says we should be found in him in peace, that peace should mark our lives, that we don't seek revenge. We, we leave room for the wrath of God. As 1 Peter 2.21 says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. In suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's how we're to live. And I know it's, it's becoming commonplace today that when somebody hurts you, when somebody does something wrong to you, that you're supposed to get them back. If they hurt you, you get them back. You make them hurt. Even amongst Christians, you make them hurt like they made you hurt. Folks, that might be worldly, but it is not Christian and it is not biblical. This is so critical. We have a supremely important message that Christ is coming back and he's the only way to salvation. But it's really hard for us to have any credibility on that message when we're picking a fight with folks in the checkout line at Price Chopper. Can I just tell you, they stop it. Cut it out. Don't let a little thing cancel out a big thing. And whenever your blood starts to boil when somebody's done you wrong, remember this. It pales in comparison to how Christ was treated. And when you're treated as unfairly as him, you have a gripe. But until then, you live at peace. The desire of our hearts is to live out Christ. In fact, he says here, spotless and blameless. That's what he says we're to be. Those are descriptors of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That in our lives we're to present Jesus. When was the last time anybody mistook you for Christ? Are you presenting Christ in your words, your actions, your deeds, in your social media presence? Are you presenting Christ? Look at verses 15 and 16. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote you, as also in all his letters... Speaking in term in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. There's so much here, but but you, you see that important phrase, we regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, that every moment Christ gives us is another moment to tell somebody about Christ. 
It's the attitude of Paul when he said, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the flesh, this will be, mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I'm hard pressed into, in both directions, the desiring to depart and be with Christ, which is very much better. Do you hear Paul's heart that if he's left me here, if he's put breath in my lungs, it's for one purpose, and it's to be fruitful for him to present Christ. It's the reason when we baptize somebody, we don't hold them under and send them on to glory. No, we lift them up, amen, because they got a job to do. We have work to do. We're to be holy, we're to be evangelistic, and we're to be steadfast. Look at verses 17 through 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Do you see his command here? Be on your guard. Don't you get carried away by unprincipled men, that we stand our ground, we grow in grace. We're not carried away by unprincipled men. That, the Greek word for unprincipled here means no law. In a world that continually wants to remove God, wants to remove any sense of law and authority and right and wrong, remove any sense of morality, we stand our ground and we grow in grace. Peter is telling his readers, no matter how difficult it becomes, don't you dare trim the sails. You stay true to the word of God and the gospel. We don't change the word or the message to accommodate the sinfulness of men. We call sinful men and women up to the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. We're not seeking to be relevant. That's not our goal. We're not even, to be quite honest with you, seeking. The main goal is not to grow. The main goal is to be faithful. No matter how bad things get, no matter what comes our way, we persevere in faithfulness. Now, we as Americans, we have been so blessed, so blessed. In, 19, or in 1776, America started something, something completely new. In a world that was fed up with evil kings, men and women who were ruling by their lineage or by birth, instead of by character and life, we started something new. It was called a grand experiment. It was based on a constitution, one of the most profound documents ever created. 55 men over a period of approximately about 12 days created a theologically informed law that held leaders accountable. And it would be administered by representatives, leaders who would be given authority on the basis of a vote by an informed majority. And the informed majority would delegate to these leaders an authority, these leaders that they believed to be the wisest and the best of men and women. And their job was to follow this law. It was a government, as Lincoln said, of the people, by the people, and for the people. And the question was, would it work? It was a grand experiment, never been done before. Remember Benjamin Franklin looked at the back of George Washington's chair and the back of that chair was the outline of a sun that was half exposed. And he said, I couldn't tell if it was a sunrise or a sunset. I didn't know if we were beginning one of the greatest days of the history I'd ever known 
or if it was about to be a sunset and we were about to bring in some bad days, would it work? I want to be clear that the best way to govern is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But until he returns, I truly believe that the American governmental system is the best. However, it is not perfect and it's not without its problems, two of which the founders knew. They understood very clearly. One is there was the problem of getting elected and staying elected, that these elected leaders would always feel a tension between doing what is right and what's wise and best and getting reelected because doing what's right is not always popular. So the fear was that at some point that it would just devolve into a popularity contest and we would lose what they referred to as statesmen, men and women who governed on the basis of principles would be replaced by those who simply handed out the most goodies. The second fear is that a representative government demands a culture and a constituency that adheres to a moral standard. In other words, if the majority of this nation, and the founders understood this, even if they all weren't Christians, they were at least essentially deists, they knew that if the majority of this nation moved away from God and the idea of an absolute truth and morality, it would be the death knell of the nation. Because an immoral 51% can be just as dangerous as an evil, tyrannical king. And folks, that's exactly where we find ourselves. And make no mistake, we didn't get here overnight. So what do we do? That's why I wanted to preach this message. We primarily, we live holy lives, we preach the gospel, and we stand firm. As Christians, are we to be involved in politics? Yes, we are. We're to influence our culture with our lives and our witness, just like Daniel in Babylon, just like Nehemiah, Mordecai, and Esther in Persia, and just like Joseph in Egypt. We're to be salt and light. We're to preserve the holiness of God and push back the darkness as long as we can, knowing that things are not going to get better here. And as we seek to influence our culture, we have a privilege, a privilege, a responsibility, a right that few other Christians have ever known throughout the history of Christianity. We have the opportunity to have a say. We call it a vote. The ability to be directly involved with the leadership of our nation. And at few other points in the history of our nation has more been at stake than there is right now. When you vote, you're not simply voting for a candidate. You are voting for a platform. More than that, you are voting for a worldview. And to a large extent, there's two worldviews represented on those ballots. And they are headed in completely opposite directions. And I'm not talking about politically or economically. I'm talking about theologically and morally. Postmodernism has been invading our culture for decades. Postmodernism is essentially the idea that there is no truth. There is no absolute truth. Truth is whatever you want it to be. It's moral relativism. And the voice of the people becomes the voice of God. You become God. You determine what is right and wrong. And everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It's the dark ages of Israel and Judges. And listen to me, it's, the, it's at the heart of the destruction of every culture and every nation since the Tower of Babel. And we, who are we? We are Christians. We are a people who we believe in an infinite personal God who is Trinity and he is creator and he's sovereign. 
We believe that he's made man in his image and therefore every human being has an infinite and unique value to the heart of God that no other part of creation enjoys. That means that every individual is worthy of dignity and respect, man or woman, black or white, deaf or blind, disabled, and the child that grows in the womb, and even the man or woman who is about to die, all made in the image of God. We believe that man is fallen, that man is not inherently good. Man is a sinner. Men and women are dead to God and there's nothing inside of them that can fix it. We believe that God has made himself known in his perfect and inerrant word. His word is the standard of truth and morality. And we believe that the central figure of that Bible is Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. He's the way to God because he's in keeping with the truth of God and therefore he alone is the bestower of life or as he said it, I'm the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. We also believe that anyone who will repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. And we believe that one day Christ is returning to judge the quick and the dead and all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ will be with Christ forever in heaven and everyone who rejects him will be eternally separated from him in a place called hell. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So listen to me. When you go in that ballot box, if you haven't already done so, then by the way, you vote. We can do better. It is a shameful thing that millions of Christians have set out elections. I don't care how discouraged you might be with the candidates, you vote. We can do better. And if Christians would prayerfully and wisely vote, we'd have the opportunity to change the tide of this nation. But when you go into that ballot box, remember this. Your right to hold those beliefs that I just mentioned, to hold those beliefs without any fear of persecution, hangs in the balance. The levees of this country have broken You know what we're doing now? We're sandbagging. We're doing our best to hold back the coming tide of sinfulness, to preserve the holiness of God and to push back the decay and the decline of our culture as best we can. And as we do so, let me just give you two points of conscience. I could mention many more, but just at least two this morning. Points that are are not essentially political. They're not economic. This is not about foreign policy. These, I believe, are biblical and moral issues. The first is abortion. If you read, and listen to me, If you read the Democratic platform, which, by the way, I did this past week, you will find that its goal is unlimited access to abortion. Abortion on demand. It is stated there, late late term, government-funded abortion. It's called infanticide. And I pray for the repeal of Roe versus Wade, or at the very least, the continuation of restraints, things that we've fought hard for since 1973, parental consent, sonograms, time limits. 
Whatever we can do, but listen, church, more than 60 million babies have been aborted in this country since 1973, and I fear that the blood of a generation of murdered infants cries out to God and has reached his ears, and he's come down to sea like in the days of Sodom. And it might just be that what we're experiencing today is the chastisement of God. And so listen to me, I will not vote for any candidate who will not take a hard stand for life. In 2012, I voted for Mitt Romney, who is a Mormon. And I think you know how I feel about Mormonism. But he stood for life. And I agreed with him on those issues that were critical to me, and he gained my vote. We are not voting for personalities. We're voting for platforms and worldviews. Secondly is religious liberty. And this is important to me because I truly believe our ability to say no to the participation in certain actions, activities, and ceremonies lies in the balance. I really believe this church that our ability to openly, freely gather in this place and preach the full counsel of God's word and it not be called hate speech and persecuted as such lies in the balance. But primarily when I go into that booth, there's one person that I think of, one person that I feel pressured by when I vote, an individual I cannot see, I don't even know their name, an individual that just wants a chance to breathe on their own. They don't ask for much, they just ask for tomorrow. They would appreciate it also if the adults in their world didn't invade their sanctuary and obliterate their life right to life. It was not their doing that put them there. And I think about standing between those and those who would seek to take their life because that individual is considered inconvenient. And in order to stand up for them, I will oppose anyone who seeks to take their life. And I think of my two boys, and I pray that they'll get the chance to grow up in this great nation where we have known freedoms and protections, and to be honest with you, that we have taken for granted for far too often. So is Tuesday important? You bet it is. But there is another day that is more important, and it's called the day of the Lord. And the real question this morning is, are you ready for that moment? Are you ready for the return of the Lord? Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that king? He is coming, the final prophet, priest, and king. One day he is returning, and there will be no more politics, no more religion. Only Jesus Christ, priest, and king. And you ain't voting him in. He ain't on a ballot. God has established him as king. But until that day, we'll be right here preaching Jesus, remaining steadfast no matter how hard it gets, no matter how intense the persecution. Jesus stood for us. Will we stand for him? Proverbs 24.10. Proverbs 24.10. If you're slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know who keeps your soul? And Will he not render to a man according to his work? When evil is strong, that is when it's the most important that the people of God stand firm. And we can't claim ignorance because God knows that we know.
and we'll be accountable for how we responded in the day of evil. It's said there was 40 Roman wrestlers in Nero's army, an elite group of soldiers, 40 Roman wrestlers. They were the Navy SEALs of the Roman army, the best of the best, and they had a motto, we're 40 Roman wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. Then word came to Nero as Christianity began to spread throughout the Roman Empire that many of his soldiers had become Christians. And in that day, to become a Christian was punishable by death. So so Nero sent out Vespasian, his commander, to go through the ranks and to see if there, there be any Christians among them, to find them and to execute them. Vespasian went through the ranks and he came to the 40 wrestlers and he, he lined them up and he said to them, I... I'm here to determine if there's any Christians among us. And I've heard that a true Christian would never deny Christ. So what I'm going to ask you to do, if you're a Christian, I'm asking you to step forward. But before you do, know that anyone who confesses Christ will die by order of Nero. And he was completely unprepared for what happened next. Because all 40 men stepped forward. And Vespasian was shocked. He pleaded with them to step back and and renounce their faith, but none of them moved. So he had a plan. It was in the middle of winter, and they were stationed alongside a lake that was completely frozen over. And so what he did is he built this huge bonfire on the shore of that lake, and he ordered all 40 of them to strip down all their armor, all their clothes, and he marched them out on the ice. And he sent them out. And he said, if any of you want to renounce Christ, all you got to do is make your way over to the fire. He sent them out and he waited and and soon he heard from out on the ice, we are 40 Roman wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. 40 Roman wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown and Vespasian thought to himself, well, they're chanting now, give them a little time. On on into the night they chanted repeatedly until in the early hours of the morning, suddenly it stopped. Vespasian looked out on the ice and he saw the shadow of a figure slithering across the ice to the bonfire, turning his back on Jesus. And Vespasian thought, now it begins. I know, men, I know. Now they'll all turn. They'll all be coming soon. But suddenly he heard again from the ice, 39 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. The story goes that Vestation looked down at this man shivering And it's said that he took off his helmet and he took off his armor and he removed his shoes and he ran out onto the ice chanting, 40 Roman wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. Jesus wrestled for us. It's time we wrestled for him. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you. 
God, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your grace. We know that there's not one person in this room this morning that deserves salvation. All of us are sinners. All that we deserve is death and hell. That's what we've rightly earned by means of our sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. God, we're so grateful that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son. God, I pray if there's anybody that's entered into this room this morning, maybe they're watching online, maybe they're at Reach Church DeSoto this morning, or maybe they're in their home, or maybe they're in another room. I don't know where they're at this morning, but if they joined us today and they don't know you, I pray that the central figure that they heard about this morning is Jesus, who came once, and he lived a perfect, sinless life, and he died on a cross for our sins. Didn't die for his sins because he's perfect, he's God, he died for our sins, and he's made a way of salvation, and he's the only way to life, but if they'll trust in him this morning, their sins are forgiven, the Holy Spirit placed inside them, set down a new path, a path that leads to life. God, I pray if there's anybody here today watching or listening that doesn't know you, I pray today would be the day of salvation for them so that they would be prepared for the most important day, which is the return of Christ. God, move in their hearts and draw them to yourself by means of your grace. God, for those of us that do know you who are in this room this morning, God, I pray that we would live holy lives, constantly checking ourselves, knowing one day will be our last day and we're going to see you face to face. God, I pray that we would be evangelistic, that we would regard the patience of God as salvation, that we would tell everyone in our life over and over again and we would plead with you that you would work in their heart to bring them to a place of salvation and God I pray that we would be steadfast not moved by the changing winds of the culture around us but our hearts would be anchored in the foundation of Christ that regardless of what goes on we are unmoved help us Lord Jesus we need you we pray this in Christ's name amen